Hey, everybody, some new shark shows just dropped, and you know you want to check them out. These Nat Geo pieces will set you right. From Shark Kano, Hawaii, to Sharks vs. Dolphins, Bahama Battlegrounds, these shows are set to thrill, chill, and uh, hopefully educate about sharks. Full disclosure, my career has me on some of these shows, including new ones this year, as well as old ones. But for today's episode, we wanted to bring in my friend, Dr. Valeria Paz, who was on Sharks vs. Dolphins, Bahamas Battleground, to get into a conversation about our species of study and our experiences on these types of shows. So get ready to hear some fact bombs about sharks, dolphins, and these ocean science reality TV shows on this episode of Ocean Science Radio. Welcome back to Ocean Science Radio, the podcast that brings you the latest, greatest, and sometimes deepest stories in the ocean. I'm Aquanaut, shark ecologist, and aspiring badass, Dr. Francis Fairbaugh. And I am ocean communications specialist, Andrew Kornblatt. As we mentioned before the musical bumper, we are going to get into a bit of a discussion around sharks, dolphins, and documentary shows you may see during Shark Week, Shark Fest, and all the other ocean megafauna-themed specials. Instead of the regular type of episode we normally have, this one is going to be more of a conversation style and an opportunity for two marine biologists to chat about their experiences. So without further ado, let's bring on my friend, Dr. Valeria Paz. Hi, my name is Dr. Valeria Paz, and I'm a biologist, and I study a lot of feeding relationships, uh, including those of dolphins and their prey. What type of feeding relationships in particular? And is there any particular geographic area you study? Yeah, so I study dolphins in South Florida in the Everglades National Park. And I look at what their preference is in feeding, whether it's in the estuary or in the bay, and whether that decision of what fish they eat how much contaminants they may be accumulating through their food. We're assuming that the outlook isn't great, right? <laughs> well, actually, from uh, like an earlier study, we found that the dolphins in the Everglades had the highest mercury ever recorded, which was the basis of why we started looking more into mercury. And if it was different, depending on where you were looking within this big area, because it encompasses a freshwater river that goes into Estuarine, a bay, which is Florida Bay, which is also a site of uh, a lot of seagrass die-offs, and then the Gulf of Mexico. This may be pretty obvious, but where do you fall on the epic rivalry of the shark versus dolphin fight? I'm assuming you're pretty square on the dolphin side. Uh, I, I guess it's situational, definitely because of how much I've studied them and how much time I've spent uh, really getting to know the species. I would say dolphins, team dolphins all the way, but I cannot just uh, disregard the fact that sharks are also very smart and have a lot of different techniques to also be a really good competitor. Francis, uh, how do you feel about that? Where do you lay on this spectrum? Well, I think 
Valeria's a noble adversary on this one because I am a shark scientist and I specialize in sharks. I'm going to have to go team shark all the way. But of course, uh, dolphins are fascinating organisms that have complex social interactions. And so thus they are a worthy competitor. All right, let's dig into it, Valeria. What are the top three things that you can share with our audience about the species you study? What are some cool factoids or tidbits or features that would resonate with our listeners? Especially with when we look at dolphins, there's different kinds of dolphins, but particularly from the ones that I study, bottlenose dolphin, it's really cool how adaptable they are to their environment. And they use different techniques to kind of be the best predator in their, that environment, meaning they use different feeding techniques, uh, different things that uh, different skills that they can use to become the best at getting the prey. Although we think of dolphins as just having, you know, like chasing a, uh, chasing a prey and just biting it and eating it, they also collaborate with each other to be more efficient in catching that prey. And in the Everglades, they use this technique called muttering feeding, in which they swim really fast in a circle and uh, try to capture school of mullet. And as the mullet are coming out, the rest of the group is taking advantage that they're all freaking out because they're enclosed in this bubble, like muddy ring and they collaborate and like feed that way. So it's really cool. And we see this kind of different kinds of feeding behavior in different areas. They use sponges to get fish from underneath the sand. In the Gulf of Mexico, they have even found a way to like eat catfish without getting the barbs. So they would behead the catfish before eating it. So they're definitely really smart and know how to make use of like their resources. So they're very resourceful. I would say another good thing is, well, collaboration, resourceful, and also echolocation, the ability to be able to uh, use sound to see their surroundings. And that works really well in the Everglades where it could be really murky. Francis, same question to you. What are the top three cool tidbits about the species you study? Well, I think a lot of people think about sharks as a monolith. A shark is a shark. They're all just apex predators. When in reality, there are over 500 different species of sharks, all of which uh, live in different ecosystems and play different ecological roles. So sharks play really diverse roles in ecosystems. And in fact, exactly how they shape the ecosystems around them and what roles they play is an area of active investigation and is part of what I study and what many other shark scientists study. So to think about sharks like they're all jaws is a pretty common misconception. And I think something that is really fascinating about sharks and is part of the reason I enjoy shark science and am excited by them. Valeria. With the species that you're working with, what are the traditional relationships between sharks and dolphins in the wild? Are they friends or collaborators? Are they mortal enemies? Do they just kind of keep to themselves and mind their own business? What is the relationship between sharks and dolphins? So sharks and dolphins in the Everglades tend to target similar prey, similar kind of fish. So they are very much competitors. And so the relationship in the wild although they may not 
be targeting each other saying sharks see a dolphin and they want to attack it for their meal there may be just certain instances that when they have the possibility sharks have the possibilities then they will try try to target a dolphin but it's really hard to try to target a dolphin since they are very much aware of their surroundings and also very fast and they are also in groups so they have all these possibilities to be able to be aware if they're in danger. But sometimes you may get the opportunity of a lone dolphin that is resting, not paying attention, mainly like the younger dolphins. And a shark may just take the opportunity to get a quick meal. Traditionally, their relationship is more as competing for the same food. So not quite like a predator-prey relationship. Interesting. Francis, is that similar to your experience with the species you study? Yes. In fact, um, most of the species I study are reef sharks. And so their encounters with marine mammals and their opportunities to take a bite on a marine mammal would be few and far between. Most of the sharks that would be targeting dolphins, and again, that's would be fairly rare, uh, would be these larger bodied species like a bull shark or a tiger shark. And even then, as Valeria said, mostly they would be competing for the same food sources rather than a shark being an active predator of a dolphin. That would really be more of an opportunistic encounter where if a dolphin wasn't paying attention, is young, is sick, is injured, a shark wouldn't hesitate to take an easy meal because dolphins are, in fact, a good meal. They're nutrient-dense. Marine mammals have a lot of that fat, that blubber, which is a lot of energy for a shark. Okay, here is the really big question. Who are typically bigger jerks? Dolphins or sharks? <laughs> Ooh, we're not biased on this one at all. Uh, my answer immediately dolphins. Dolphins are bigger jerks. In my mind, that's mostly because dolphins, because they have these really complex social behaviors, it's much easier to anthropomorphize them and sort of project human morality onto them. <laughs> and when you do that, they often behave in really out of pocket ways. Like, <laughs> Definitely. Just, I, yeah. I will definitely agree on that. Dolphins could seem like they're bigger jerks to us. One instance that I can think of is like when you see them play with their food, they're not necessarily like eating it just for sustenance, but they're using it as just a fun time to just like socialize. And also, I guess they learn from each other by playing. So it's great. But you see it and they're just playing with their food, which sometimes like a very large fish that doesn't seem to be having a great time. So you can think of it as maybe a bit of jerk behavior. Yeah. One video I saw a while back was of some dolphins. I don't remember what species, a group of them passing around a puffer fish. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> is that an example of dolphins actually loitering and doing what we would consider, quote unquote, drugs? Yes, uh, certainly so. Or it's speculated that that's why they use it. They bite on these puffer fish. And it tends to be the juvenile males that do that a lot. <laughs> so I don't know. Take it as is, I guess. Typical teenage boys. <laughs> <laughs> Francis, do sharks ever use illicit substances? Have we seen that in the wild? You know, I, I hesitate to say no, never, uh, because it's nature. There's almost always an exception to the rule. But I don't know that there's uh, any well-documented case case of that. 
sharks do exhibit limited social behaviors. Dr. Giannis Papastamatus put out some papers on this, uh, famously scalped hammerhead school. But rather than that being like a family or a strong social dynamic, it looks like they might school for other reasons. So mostly, as a broad generalization, sharks tend to just mind their business. You know, they eat when they're hungry. And that's kind of their deal for all that they're built up as being these like fearsome, bloodthirsty predators. Mostly they eat when they're hungry and will take a free meal where they can get it or an easy meal where they can get it. But if you encounter a, a shark in the wild, mostly it's going to swim away from you because it's scared or it will be uh, uninterested. They're, they mostly mind their business. All right, kids, be like sharks. Don't do drugs or harass pufferfish. So both of you have been on documentaries around Shark Week or Fest or whatever. How do those shows measure up to the actual experience of doing field work? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Good question. Yes. It tends to be pretty different in some ways. It would be very difficult for you to get a really productive field day in with a documentary crew tagging along. No, definitely. Uh, I think the priorities are a bit different in field work. A lot of the time is getting the data as best as you can do it and working a lot. Like the whole goal is collecting the data. While when you're filming, you'll also have to take into account that they may want certain shots that uh, require more time. So a lot of the time, it takes a lot longer to complete a task because you have to film each step of the way rather than a lot of the times before we are in the field, we already know what the task is and what we're going to do. And we have a pretty good idea of how to be most efficient while we're in the field. Um, so definitely it's a lot different. Yeah. The documentary crew needs the coverage, right? Because you're, they're trying to show this thing and explain this thing, which means oftentimes you have to do processes over and over and over again. So anytime there's a shot uh, that's a wide shot of you, and then it will cut to a close-up of your hands or the item, the thing that you're talking about or explaining, that's a, a different shot and was done probably not simultaneously. So all of that just extends your day. Uh, and in addition, you have all of the people you would normally need to get something done add on a, a whole film crew, usually one or two camera people, someone for sound, someone that's assisting all of those people handle gear. So you suddenly your people and your gear are doubled and you have to do a lot more work. So a lot of times what is shown on the shows is not the most productive field day. It's a field day that is taken for filming. One thing that I notice a lot about these shows, especially in shark versus dolphins, Bahamas, there was a lot of ADR or automated dialogue replacement as what sounded like radio comms while you're all underwater with scuba gear and mouthpieces that didn't quite seem to have that talkback technology. Are you recording those sound bites later? Yes. Sometimes on those films, and I think specifically in the film that I'm featured in this year, uh, Sharkano Hawaii, my full face mask did not have a buddy phone system in. I have a smaller face and we were having a hard time fitting a mask on my face that a buddy phone was in. So all of that dialogue is recorded in post. It's me on my iPhone in a shower. And then I'm sure they had a voice filter on saying stuff that we would have been saying underwater. And then very hilariously, when we're underwater, sort of miming talking to each other. 
<laughs> that was similar experience to the uh, shark versus dolphins in the Bahamas. I did have a buddy phone and just at first I was trying to communicate with Mike using that. But because there's so many bubbles on the water, you get a lot of breakage of communication. So it's not great for documentaries. So a lot of the communication and talking was done afterwards, which is kind of hard to gear your level of emotion when you're doing this and you're not seeing what you're talking about. They'll give us an idea of what the scene was or what they had filmed and what time it was, but it's hard to time it, which is why sometimes it sounds very much a little robotic or not <laughs> as much of emotion as, you know, it was in the moment. We do talk to each other or try to when we're diving, but it's just not great to be recorded. I will say that's not always the case. I've been on uh, other documentaries where they just use the buddy phone audio to the best of my knowledge because they did have, you know, it was clean. Sometimes you have to do mood movie magic. <laughs> yes, definitely. I mean, it. I guess it depends on like the conditions, right? It was fairly choppy and with that much sound wave and just like bubbles, like it's really hard to get a clear communication underwater. So... All right. So I wanted to ask a little bit about Gooey. Can we talk about Gooey? Oh, yes. The true star. <laughs> the true star of this week's or this year's Shark Fest. All right. Can you describe to our listeners what Gooey was and why Gooey was made? Of course. Yes. So uh, Gooey was specially made for this episode. And what the well, Gooey is semi life size, well, almost life size dolphin that it was made from gel that mimics the density of dolphin blubber and it's non toxic. And we use Gooey to be able to get bite impressions of potentially some sharks and seeing how the shark will attack Gooey. Gooey was really heavy and it surprisingly looked really good when it was floating on top of the water. Our engineers at FIU did a great job with the mold and making sure that it was properly balanced to be in salt water as well. And it was really funny to film with because as you see, we're taking a dolphin onto a boat in a area that there's many other users of the ocean. And we definitely got some weird looks as well as when we were in the hotel, they were like, what are you bringing in? What is that? I uh, it was a uh, lot of explaining. <laughs> we, yeah. Didn't, uh, the, didn't the Coast Guard pull us over? Yes. They were like, um, what's going on? What do you have there? Because Gooey, although it was fairly sturdy, when it was under the sun for too long, it would start to lose its shape a bit. So we had to cover it with wet towels. It was 90, 95 degrees when we were filming. So it was really hot. So if you see a shape of a dolphin covered in where you see towels and you see somebody wetting it on a boat, you may think, hey, they took a dolphin. It truly looked very suspicious because we also had it on like a backboard. So it really did look like we were some on a rescue mission. Yeah, like a dolphin (laughs) rescue team. Or a dolphin smuggling ring. Or Uh, that. that, that 
terrible. <laughs> How did the mold of Gooey come about? Did you do like a plaster cast of a dolphin or did somebody sculpt it? How did that happen? That was the magic of the engineering team. And I think it was uh, using the proportions of what a dolphin would be like to the best of their ability. It's not an exact replica, but it's pretty close to the length of a dolphin. I think the fins were a little bigger than an actual dolphin, but that's also for being able to stabilize on the water because it's so top heavy in order to be able to balance it as a dolphin would be. The fins had to be a little larger than usual. Yeah, my uh, understanding from the, some of the behind the scenes stuff is they had to modify basically a mold and then they poured half of it into the, a mold and then molded the other half as well and then had to bind them together. Yes. It was an intensive process. With Gooey, you had to attract sharks to actually come and bite the thing to get these bite marks to use in your research. Was there a specific blood or chum recipe that worked really well? How many times did you have to test to get the sharks to try and bite on this technically vegan dolphin alternative? <laughs> uh, it was a long day trying yes. to get the dolphin well, or the sharks to bite. <laughs> it was long yeah. days. Uh, it took several tries. We didn't put any like oils or anything like that. It was just bait that we attached to gooey. And as we know, sharks have a lot of senses in which they can tell whether it's prey or not. And gooey was very big and significantly big. So sharks were not really interested in biting it at first. So we had to put some bait in order to attract them. And even then, it took several tries until one was brave enough to take a bite. But in the end, you got what you needed? Yes, definitely. And it was a triumphant moment on the boat because it had oh, yes. been yeah several days of trying. Definitely hard to get it in and out of the water and maintain its shape and make sure that... It was really... It doesn't look heavy it was really heavy like how many pounds are we saying here uh, it's over 150 right yeah it's like something like 150 pounds but it's you know you think about oh well, i can lift a person that's 150 pounds but it's 150 pounds of dead weight but actually fiu still has it so it still has the full gooey complete with the bit off portion and it was actually on display at shark con this past weekend nice how did that go over at shark con People were very fascinated. Half the people who were there who hadn't seen the show were very confused as to what, <laughs> what it was. But there should be lots of pictures of both young kids and adults posing and taking pictures with Gooey. All right, here's a fun one. You two, a shark scientist and a dolphin scientist, are friends. How does that work? Can shark scientists and dolphin scientists actually be friends? Well... Valeria is one of my best friends, so I don't know if this is like a Legolas Gimli situation where we're the odd pair out, but I think they certainly can be friends. In fact, sometimes dolphin scientists and shark scientists are the same people, that is... Uh, as is the case with our mutual advisor uh, when we were <laughs> both getting our PhDs. <laughs> yes, definitely. I think we could both appreciate our animals and how good of predators they could be. And a lot of similar questions are asked for dolphins and sharks. So there's a lot of commonality uh, when we're talking science. And well, Francis is one of my best friends, so it works out. Although when it does come down to, you know, going between 
dolphins and sharks. I'll definitely also be team dolphin all the way. Sorry, Francis. Well, uh, I will have to stick to my shark loyalties as well, so I understand. What do you each wish that the public knew more about your respective species? What is one big thing that you wish our audience would take away or know about sharks or dolphins? I think on the shark side, that's pretty easy. Again, I think there's sharks have this have a bad rap. They're often misconstrued as these bloodthirsty, fearsome, top apex predators. And while they certainly are wonderful, effective predators, they're not that bloodthirsty. They mind their own business. Mostly, sharks are not a danger to you at all. And there's a lot more to understand about them other than just how they attack people or how they attack dolphins. They are, as we're coming to understand more and more, can be crucial parts of the ecosystems that they are a part of. And we lose a lot more than we gain when we lose sharks in our ecosystems. So here's to understanding more about them and more about the roles that they play. Definitely. I mean, we study marine megafauna, so a lot of people are interested in dolphins or love dolphins and love sharks. But what's important about studying this big predator is that they're really good indicators of how the oceans are doing. So when people ask me, why care about dolphins? Why care about sharks? Well, if you like the ocean and you like seafood, you want to see your backyard here in Florida thrive then you should care about dolphins. You should care about sharks because their well-being could very much be an indicator of how the oceans are doing. So when going back to sharks versus dolphins, I think just the big main takeaway is that they need food and they're really good predators, but also that they are an important member of the ocean and they would be able to let us know how healthy our oceans are. Yeah, for all that sharks and dolphins are maybe competitors in the ocean, I think when it comes to people, we should be caring about both of these types of predators and our our oceans in general. So maybe the whole idea of one versus the other is actually a little bit of a trap. Or a way to just get some attention to be able to tell them, hey, you know, these are very much really cool animals and incite that uh, curiosity to learn more. And with that, learning more about how they can help. Cool. That kind of leads into my next question. What do you wish the public knew about field research and the work that you do out in the oceans or, you know, the glades? I think for my particular study site in the Everglades, I find it every time that I'm doing a public event that not many people know that dolphins live in like the freshwater rivers of the Everglades and they spend a lot of their time there too as well. And they also find it very interesting that sharks and alligators and crocodiles all exist in this area. So it's mostly about getting to know what system and ecosystems are near you could be very helpful and within the Everglades not many people know that there's like a big restoration to bring back or guide water back into the Everglades the purpose of that is to be able to combat sea level rise as well as algal blooms which have really hurt the Everglades um, in the past 50 to 80 years since building the canals that now where we stand in Miami to build the communities in Miami and South Florida. Not many people know about this huge restoration plan, which is probably one of the biggest ones in the history of the U.S. And it all occurs in the Everglades. I think on my end, 
part of what was really special about my my research, my dissertation work, was that I got to work in French Polynesia, which is the world's largest shark sanctuary. And a lot of people who aren't from uh, French Polynesia might hear that and think, well, a small island nation. And it is in a sense, but it also is geographically covers quite a stretch of ocean, the exclusive economic zone. So the area of water that French Polynesia economically controls is over 5 million square kilometers, which for some perspective is around half the size of continental Europe. So I was working in the equivalent of sites that would be as far south if we were overlaying it on Europe as say, you know, Southern Italy and as far north as Scandinavia. So this is a huge stretch of ocean. And because there is some cultural history around uh, not shark fishing. In addition to that, Shark Sanctuary, a band that started in 2006, shark populations are quite healthy there. And that allowed me to ask a lot of really important ecological questions about what's going on with shark populations, which drives abundance and distribution, largely outside of human influence. And then to start trying to extrapolate that into the wider relationships of sharks and coral reef systems which is an area of active investigation. So I think one of the main takeaways is how much there still is to learn and to know. Sharks and dolphins are both really cool, extraordinary creatures, but we're far from understanding everything there is to know about them or even understanding enough to be able to make our management and conservation efforts the most effective. Just getting more knowledge in that area and being curious is something that's really, I think, critical to being a field biologist and a marine biologist in general. Okay. So what was it like working with channels like Nat Geo or Discovery while trying to share the discoveries or work that you're doing in, you know, science communication? It's always really exciting when you get the opportunity to work with or on one of these crews or with these films, that also comes with a little bit of nervousness. I think people might overestimate how much control scientists have in the process of these films. We actually don't have a lot of creative control necessarily. So part of your job is really on the day when you're in there doing your best to communicate the science as accurately as possible. There's a certain extent where you just have to trust the, the crew, the filmmakers, to then, in editing, tell the story. Uh, correctly. So there's this twofold. There's It's an honor. It's a responsibility. It's an opportunity because I would never otherwise get the chance like I do in the film this year to go to some of these places and to be in the water with some of these animals. The scientists are not the end-all be-all of those films. In fact, we're maybe not even the majority of the creative process there. So good science communication requires a whole community. Being able to work in a National Geographic documentary episode is a great honor. It also comes with a lot of responsibility as well. For me personally, I'm pretty much camera shy slash I'm working on my science communication skills. But one big part of what pushed me to pursue this opportunity was the fact that one growing up, I did not see people that looked like me. I'm a Hispanic woman in science, and I felt like it was my responsibility to try to be involved in this because I would have liked to see someone that looked like me in this film. So re representation in science is vital uh, in order to be more inclusive as well, particularly in fields like marine mammal biology or shark science, which is now recently more seen, but definitely the science communication part and making sure that the 
stuff that you're relaying to the public cannot be misconstrued in any way. And with that, the crew that we have worked with, and they make sure to double check certain facts that they may not be sure of. And I know they have science uh, advisors as well to make sure that they're saying the correct information. But overall, I think it's a great opportunity to grasp the attention of the public and hopefully give some cool facts that would make the public more interest and maybe incite some questions that could be helpful overall. Although it may have just seemed like it was just a gimmick to try to get a dolphin to gooey, a dolphin decoy to get bit by a shark. We learn a lot from it, just especially because the shape of the dolphin and how the shark bites it is a lot different if we're just getting a normal bite. It could really incite some clues that we can use for that research and see what species are maybe attacking dolphins more. And there's still a question that we need to research more to get some answers. All right. Well, that was a super fun discussion, and I hope it inspires our listeners to check out Sharks versus Dolphins, Bahama Battleground, starring our guest, Dr. Valeria Paz, and Sharkano, Hawaii, starring our very own Dr. Francis Faribaugh. And remember, for each hour you watch on one of these shows, there are hundreds, if not thousands of hours of work, research, and data analysis that you don't see. And as much as we would love to, we can't spend every moment in the ocean with the species we study. Big thanks to our guest, Dr. Valeria Paz. And And a big thanks to you, our listeners. Don't forget to like, subscribe, hit all the stars, and share this podcast with your friends. It It helps grow our audience and get more cool content out there. Also, remember, you can follow scientists on social media and ask questions to them directly. But remember to be respectful and value their time and expertise. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of Ocean Ocean Science Science Radio. So my name is Valeria Paz and, oh, should I say, sorry, I already messed up. Should I be Dr. Valeria Paz? If you got the doctor, you you definitely should. should. Always celebrate those accolades. You work freaking hard for it. (laughs) All right. I'm Aquanaut, shark ecologist, and aspiring badass Francis Faribault. <clears throat> I'm sorry, aspiring badass what, Francis Faribault? Oh, right. Uh, I am a, <laughs> I am Aquanaut, shark ecologist, and aspiring badass Dr. Francis Faribault. Better.